from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome, friends. Good to have you aboard. We are uh, about to delve into one of the things, I guess, is uh, uh, the hallmark of uh, this program is to uh, get beyond, I guess, the textbooks and those things that we were taught in school uh, and look at life a little differently uh, because... We don't always get the truth from textbooks. Sometimes they're a little behind, that's true. And other times, there are things about our uh, past that is conveniently left out, and we're about to find out why that might be. You know, we've, uh, I guess, always been sort of led to believe that uh, civilization began about, uh, I guess, 5,000 years ago or so. 4,400 years ago, ancient Greece, the cradle of civilization. Uh, most of us now know that's not true. But how far back does advanced civilization go? Well, you are about to have your world rocked right now because we're about to speak with the author of The Lost Civilization Enigma. He's a regular contributor to magazines such as Atlantis Rising and Nexus Magazine. He's labeled a skeptic by the believers and a believer by the skeptics, which is kind of a unique position that makes him a well-recognized voice of reason. He's the author of eight books, including the best-selling The Ancient Alien Question, one of the leading contributors to the History Channel's popular series Ancient Aliens. He lives in Edinburgh in L.A., I think where we've reached him tonight. A great honor to have Philip Coppins back on The Conspiracy Show. Hello, Philip. How are you? Hello there, Richard. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, you uh, the Ancient Alien Question, uh, which came out last year, and we talked to you at that time, and you, you talk about sort of the, uh, uh, the, you know, we are not alone. Uh, now in the Lost Civilization Enigma, what conclusions have you reached about lost civilizations? That we weren't the first. And as you're saying in your introduction, you have very much this idea that we are four, five, six thousand years, um, still reigns. We have somehow shed away all of this idea that the world was created six thousand years ago, but we still definitely cling to this notion that civilization is only six thousand years old. And that's definitely the case if you're looking at textbooks. Uh, you know, we, we go to Greece, Egypt, Sumer, and then there seems to be this big gap. And we are being told by science that we, the human species, have been around for 30, 35,000 years ago. And it seems that for roughly 30,000 years of that existence, we did nothing whatsoever. And that is basically the image which science is, is telling us, that we didn't do anything, that there were slight pockets somewhere in the Middle East, roughly from 10,000 years onwards or so, a few cities like Gobekli Tepe, Katalyuk, Jericho, and a few more, but nothing too much. And that ever after, like, you know, we, as if kind of like, you know, there was a big fanfari or God literally speaking out and saying, okay, now you can do civilization. And at 4,000, 3,000 BC, all of that began to happen everywhere. And that is really bizarre because the, the evidence suggests that we have been around for far longer um, and that there are truly lost civilizations. Definitely. You can you can say that we have been very civilized pretty much from from where we have you know been as a species thirty thousand years ago, and you can see that uh, again. Uh, science will say this is sporadic and you know discarded, like the cave paintings of Altamira or the cave paintings of Lascaux in France. 
beautiful things which our ancestors did. Um, and you would think that they are standalone, but just if you go over to the Dodon region in France, you will see that these cave paintings are part of a, an extremely elaborate culture. Our ancestors 20,000, 25,000 years ago were doing everything. They were painting everywhere, and to some extent, the, the paintings are the only thing which remain because of the position where they were made. But these people were definitely, you know, part of a civilization. Not to do with planes, not to do with Wi-Fi or anything of that kind, but a civilization which spanned larger than a country of France, which pretty much was across Europe. And um, with exchange of ideas, exchange of information, planning ideas, and what I find most interesting, an absolute conviction that we were more than just a physical human being, that we were more than just what we saw with our everyday senses. Our earliest ancestors 30,000 years ago or so figured out that there was more to life than just this stretch of time between birth and death, that there was something else, that there was a large universe which somehow our brain could capture, and also that upon death it seemed that something happened there as well. And all of those things really are discarded by science. Science is, is truly not interested in this. And why science. is that, uh, Philip? I mean, not only are they not interested, it would appear that there is some evidence uh, that they've been active in trying to obfuscate, perhaps discard knowingly evidence. Uh, what What's at stake? Why are they afraid? Well, they're, they're afraid of many things. The book opens off with a chapter called The New Inquisition, and it's a, a case of Glozelle. Now, Glozelle is a small village in France. At stake there was the possibility that writing was thousands of years older, or that somehow the dating of certain sites um, was, was basically inaccurate. In short, the reputation of some historians and various other academics was at stake. And you would think that scientists are very open-minded, then you would go like, okay, we were wrong, the new evidence is in, and we're just going to adapt our position to this. What happens in Glozelle is, is typical um, of, of what basically these, these scientists do, which is that their professor has published something, or they have published something, and if a new discovery is made, they will do everything to make sure that this new discovery is never going to contradict anything they or their predecessors have ever said. And as a result of that, you truly have got this iconoclastic ivory tower, which is constantly kept in place. And in Glozal, they do the most outrageous things. This is a farmer who has found uh, these artifacts. The farmer was thrown in jail. Uh, he was thrown in jail so that the scientists involved, and these are the leading scientists in the field of anthropology and archaeology of the 1920s. He was thrown in jail so that these leading scientists could pretend that he had been arrested for fraud. And sure, he was arrested for fraud, but also the charges were dropped because there was no evidence whatsoever that he had falsified these archaeological findings. But ever since the 1920s, the leading archaeologists of so many universities will continue to say that this man, Emile Fradin, was arrested on charges of fraud, and to them that makes it all go away. Um, it is such a narrow perspective. They twist the truth. They twist it to their advantage. One of the leading archaeologists of 
its time was a woman called Dorothy Garrow. Uh, she was teaching at Oxford. She went on to teach some of the leading archaeologists of, of our time. And Dorothy Garrow was found uh, on, the, on the site of Glozell trying to falsify the evidence herself. She was going to make sure that Glozell was not going to happen. But to what um, end? Okay, I understand, yes, they're protecting reputations or, you know, maybe they, uh, they have tenure and they don't want to be discredited and, 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 and so forth. And, but this new finding, okay, so it, it, it may prove that, uh, you know, man had uh, the capability of, you know, written language several thousand years, pre- you know, earlier than previously thought. To me, I don't see that as a huge, as a huge threat, but why send people to jail for something like that? Because it is for them a huge threat. It, it is their reputations which are at stake. They have all published something at some point, whether it's the PhD thesis, uh, you know, which they have created. Um, it, it's a framework which holds in, in very thin threats. Um, another example would be in Egypt, where they have constructed this entire timeline um, the, the the Great Pyramid, dated to, to 2450-ish BC. There are carbon dates known to exist since the 1980s, which show that the Great Pyramid and its next-door neighbor, the Second Pyramid, that one of Khafre, are 700 years older. These carbon dating results are uncontested. Everybody accepts that they are legit. However, the scientists involved refuse to publish them. And so they can pretend that because they haven't been published in a peer-reviewed journal that they don't exist. They make up the, the rules of the game and then control the game. Um, as a result of which, they can happily pretend, and have been pre- pretending for the last 30 years, that everything is fine, that you know there, there is such a thing. In the case of, of, of pyramids, again, not a single pyramid has ever been found um, which has an intact mummy. Scientists will say that this has all to do with the fact that all of these pyramids have been robbed. Well, that is not the case. In the 1950s, uh, Egyptologists found an intact pyramid. Nobody had ever gone in there. When they came to the chamber, they found the seals intact. When they came to the coffin, the sarcophagus, they found the seals intact there. When they removed the lid of the sarcophagus, they found it empty. There was nothing in there. The same case for the Great Pyramid. Philip, uh, let me uh, jump in here. We'll uh, take a time out when we come back. We'll, uh, we'll continue to delve into ancient civilizations, and uh, we'll also talk about some other pyramids in uh, Bosnia, for example, and why the scientific community has been lining up uh, against uh, their discoverers. And uh, we'll talk about Atlantis and, and, and many other things with Philip Coppins, the author of The Lost Civilization Enigma, back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. From Yeti to Nessie, pyramids to pandemics, all is revealed on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we're talking about before recorded history, new discoveries about the people of lost civilizations. Uh, Philip Coppins is with us. The author is a, an author and investigative journalist, uh, ranging from the world of politics to ancient history and mystery. He co-hosts the Spirit Revolution radio show with his wife, Kathleen McGowan, as a frequent con- contributor to Nexus Magazine and Atlantis Rising. And uh, his new book 
is entitled The Lost Civilization Enigma. Uh, we were talking about uh, Egypt, uh, Philip, and I wanted to ask you, um, uh, I was reading recently about these winged wooden objects that were found in an Egyptian tomb back in the, uh, at the turn of the 19th century. I think it was, um, it, the tomb was called Saquara. Uh, and these, uh, they resembled uh, model airplanes, uh, these wooden um, uh, objects. They had wings, they had uh, a tail section, they even had what appeared to be a fuselage. And uh, I'm, I'm wondering what you make of, of that. I mean, is it possible that the ancient Egyptians uh, had some form of rudimentary, had mastered flight in some rudimentary fashion? Or what do you, what do you, what do you make of those discoveries? Well, definitely they, they knew the principles of flight and, and, and those objects, um, you know, pretty much were thrown in the air and, and basically were, you know, there to, to, to play with, so to speak. But obviously there's, there's a big difference between knowing about flight and, and, and how to do these things. But then you also need some aspect of speed. It, you know, planes go into the air at, at various speeds depending on their weight. It's, it, it's as simple as that. And, that is something for which we really have no evidence whatsoever that the ancient Egyptians were able to do that. Um, nor do I think were they too interested in that. They were very spiritual people. They were mostly interested in in working on, on aspects to do with, with building projects, to do with what we would call spiritual technology, i.e. how to get our mind out of our body and, and how to do this on a what I would call regulated basis. It's, it's, it's basically building structures and uh, pretty much creating environments whereby we somehow know that, you know, this is beauty, this is designed with certain specific fractions in mind. And that's something which you see uh, all over Egypt. They had such thing as pi and pi, and they were working with this because they realized that they could build incorporating the beauty to which nature uh, was adhering to as well. And we all know that when mankind builds, we can build atrocities or we can build beautiful buildings. And definitely the ancient Egyptians knew how to create beautiful buildings, which to this very day uh, inspire us. So their interest lay very much more in building and applying all of these things than, than simply trying to you know, build a plane or whatever. It was something which, for which they really didn't have the technology, uh, but most specifically, not the interest. Well, is, can you give me an example, though, of, of, of a piece of technology that an ancient civilization had that left you absolutely gobsmacked, if I can use that expression? Lenses. Um, they, our ancestors were looking at the stars, they were looking at the moon by using crystal lenses. They are in various locations, for example, in the British Museum, um, but they are not recognized for what they are. And there's actually evidence uh, by the likes of Kramer, uh, who was translating some of the ancient, uh, ancient Greek texts for the likes of Strabo. And when he was confronted with this, uh, he basically writes quite clearly saying, well, I know this says glass lenses, but we know our ancestors, the Greeks, couldn't possibly have had these. By the way, at a moment in time when these lenses were lying around in museums, um, and so he decided to to change it. He, chi- he decided to, on purpose, mistranslate some of uh, these these ancient texts to do with Strabo, instead saying that our ancestors were using tubes, which doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But our ancestors were using um, lenses. They used 
primitive forms of, of telescopes, i.e. two lenses, um, working together. And they made observations about the moon. They made observations about various other things in the sky. And um, in various museums, including the British Museum one, some of these lenses remain largely, not necessarily unrecognized, but definitely underappreciated by, by science. Um, and so to find that our ancestors were very much the stargazers, um, you know, and that they pretty much used glass technology. Glass is not that easy to make, um, and they were perfecting this so that they could look at the stars. That was definitely something which, you know, I found extremely interesting. I was in, uh, in, in Athens uh, a year ago, uh, visited the National Archaeological Museum, where, of course, the... Um, how would you describe it? It's, it's an ancient analog computer, really. It's the uh, Antikythera me- mechanism. Uh, first of all, for those who, who haven't seen this, uh, describe what it is and how it was discovered and what you think it's what, what you think it's for. Well, it was discovered at the very beginning of, of the 20th century in a shipwreck off the coast of uh, Antikythera, hence its name. Uh, it's a it's a metal device. It pretty much was half destroyed, if not more destroyed, by being on the bottom of the sea for roughly two millennia, as a result of which it's very hard to reconstruct, and it took people, first of all, several decades before they began to do so, but then largely to the work of somebody called Derek Solar Price in the 1960s, people really began to take note of this, and specifically in the last few decades, quite a number of people are actually uh, doing research on this. What they are identifying is that the Antikythera device is something of a, of a scale model of our solar system, thrown in certain things such as the zodiac, the moon, uh, some stars, and that pretty much it was meant to be put into a fact that if you, you know, sort of switch the button, then all of these scale replicas of, of the planets began to work and pretty much behave as our solar system did. So calculate astronomical positions. But we're talking first century B.C. here. I mean, uh, from from what I understand, and and, and, uh, I had this conversation at the museum in Athens, someone was saying, this this kind of technology, uh, this kind of uh, workmanship, we, we didn't have until probably the 14th century. And I think this is a misconception. I think we do have it. There is evidence that we have it. Um, you know, there there is just disbelief. In the book, I point out something else, which is that our ancestors were saying that somebody in a remote past mapped the entire world, um, that, you know, there was the science of geodesy, which basically our ancestors were absolutely familiar with. You see this. You see that our ancestors, the Celts, were able to identify, for example, the center of England, for that, they needed to have mapped England, which is, you know, several hundreds of miles long. Uh, they were able to do this and pinpoint this with greater accuracy than people in the 14th, 15th, and 16th century were doing. Uh, and it is because they had access to uh, information which our ancestors had acquired at some point in the past. It is just the case that we are not crediting our ancestors with that information. And we pretend that, you know, there is this linear tradition of basically stupid ancestors to somewhat clever ancestor, and then all of a sudden in recent centuries everything um, you know has been discovered and or invented, and that is simply not the case. We are quite often reinventing things which our ancestors had invented a long time ago, and I think the Antikythera device 
uh, is is one of these reinventions, or or basically, you know, um, one of the earlier inventions, and as we are reinventing pretty much the wheel. Philip Coppins, the author of The Lost Civilization Enigma. We were talking about the pyramids uh, earlier, uh, Philip, and uh, I want to uh, talk about pyramids that have been discovered elsewhere. In 2005, huge controversy when these formations um, were identified as uh, pyramids in Bosnia, and of course, again, the the um, Orthodox scientific community uh, lined up and said these are natural formations not man-made uh, pyramids. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, I've been involved with the saga of the Bosnian pyramids from pretty much toward the 2006. Uh, I was an, a participant on the first international conference on the Bosnian pyramids in 2008, and that had some of the leading lights of Egyptology there. I mean, the current Minister of Antiquities, Mohammed Ibrahim Ali, was there. Uh, the leading archaeologists from China were there. And there is very much an east-west divide when it comes to the Bosnian pyramids. And the reason for that is that the Western world archaeologists, specifically the European ones, um, somehow felt left out. They somehow felt that they were far more important than the people who were involved. And so they began an active campaign, um, pretty much of disinformation. Um, the likes of Anthony Harding, who was at that moment in time the chief president of, of the uh, European Association of Archaeologists, basically told all of his archaeologists that if any of them were ever found to be working at the Bosnian pyramid site, that he would personally make sure that they would never, ever, 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 ever work on any archaeological dig anywhere else. That is threatening behavior. That is not science. Um, and it has to do with the fact that, again, um, you know, they realized that in the case of the Bosnian pyramids very early on, a, they weren't going to control the information. Uh, this information, um, you know, which is scientific, things like carbon dating results, um, were going to come out without their sort of stamp of approval or their way to manipulate the information. They realized that the framework which they had constructed of European history um, might fall apart for a number of reasons. And so they went on a vociferous attack, um, you know, with, with pretty much at homonym attacks against the likes of Samuel Manigich. And uh, when you go on things like, like Wikipedia, you can still see how the opening sentence there says, oh, this is all natural and you know, nothing whatsoever to do with man-made. Well, click on the talk page, and you will see the good works of, of Doc Weller at work there. And Doc Weller is basically somebody who prides himself on exposing bad archaeologists, but basically is, is the worst-case example of that. Um, he, you know, he basically was once asked, well, you know, the ICBP in 2008 said that these structures were more than likely man-made and that further research was required. That is four years ago. Since then, the landscape has completely changed. In 2008, we had the likes of Dr. Ali Barakat, who was a PhD uh, geologist who had been sent to Bosnia on the recommendation of, of uh, Dr. Zahi, who was, and he basically... Uh, you know, absolutely came out stating that these were man-made structures. He spent 42 days uh, doing the analyses at that moment in time. Suppose uh, they are man-made. I mean, and, and one of them uh, the, the, that has been dubbed the Pyramid of the Sun in Bosnia, if it is in fact man-made, it would make it the largest pyramid in the world. If they are man-made, they are real pyramids, what is the significance of that? 
Um, it, it basically is the significance because what we have here is, is a civilization, which, you know, the way where they placed is something called Old Europe. This was a civilization which was dated between 6,500 and 3,000 BC, um, specifically the likes of, of, of one doctor called Maria Gimbutas has written about this extensively. So we know that some of the oldest civilizations in the world um, are present within that catchment area. Um, so far, there was no evidence of pyramids, but right now, clearly, that has changed. And it is no longer a question of if they're man-made. Um, you know, they are man-made. It is as simple as that. They are amongst the largest pyramids in the world. Um, the, the steps which are beginning to be uncovered is something which we're seeing throughout the world. And I'm going to go briefly to Stonehenge to actually explain this. Because in Stonehenge, what you have is the scientific dogma which tries to say Stonehenge is 3000 BC, even though there are numerous indications, if not evidence, that Stonehenge actually goes back to 8000 BC. But continuously, they have tried to explain that evidence away. Uh, the likes of Robert Langdon, who's a local archaeologist there, is, is, is basically trying to you know, get Stonehenge redated and saying, like, what are you guys doing? Uh, why do you try to keep this at 3000 BC when it's so abundantly clear, supported by evidence, supported by carbon dating, that it's 8000 BC? And the same thing seems to be happening in Bosnia. Now, in Bosnia, it seems to be something of a completely different bailiwick because this year, uh, for the first time, there was carbon dating results done on the, the Pyramid of the Sun. Uh, in June, and the University of Kiev came back with a carbon dating result of uh, 24,800 years old, which would make it you know, extremely old. Now, it is only just one carbon dating result. More carbon dating results need to happen. More information needs to come out. But when uh, archaeologist uh, prof uh, Dr. Ricardo Brett um, basically w was presenting this at a conference in September, uh, on, on the latest discoveries on the Bosnian pyramids, he basically said 25,000 years ago, you know, again, we think that this is so outside of the bailiwick of, of our ancestors and civilization, but it sits right in between what we know for such cultures as Lascaux. The ancient Egyptian civilization, the ancient Egyptians themselves said that they went back 25,000 years ago. Philip, you mentioned, our an you mentioned our ancestors. I mean, who are our ancestors and that are building these pyramids uh, this long ago in Bosnia, uh, in the New World? Uh, who were our ancestors? Are, are you any closer to understanding who they were, what they were all about? They were the likes of you and I. Um, they had the same brain power. They had the same physique. They had the same, you know, preoccupations. Um, they were like us, and they they built it because somehow... Um, somebody somewhere, uh, the answers might be in my first book, The Ancient Alien Question, uh, might have given them this information. Basically, you know, all cultures say that in a distant past, our ancestors were given information and that they began to work with this information. Okay, and Philip, we've got to take a time out. We'll uh, pick it up on the other side. Don't go away. Lost Civilization Enigma, Philip Coppins here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us.
Calling all time travelers, vampire slayers, and alien abductors. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett continues. Welcome back. Philip Coppins is with us, the lost civilization enigma. Let me ask you about the Baghdad Battery, uh, sometimes referred to as the Parthian Battery, uh, Philip. Um, first of all, describe what these things look like and what they may have been used for and when they were made. Well, I mean, obviously, the, the fact that battery goes to um, Iraq, it goes to a time um, when basically there is believed to have been no such thing as um, you know, the possibility of, of, of working with battery. But it is believed, um, based on, on basically the, the batteries which have been found, that our ancestors were able to play with, with chemicals to create some form of current which would be um, allowed to to basically plate uh, some metals. Uh, it's still very controversial. It's it's definitely not something which um, has got an easy answer. For example, which chemicals would have been involved? What kind of current? Um, whether and all of these things are you know as straightforward as as, as some people have proposed. But definitely, again, um, you're you're seeing that our ancestors were experimenting with technology way earlier than we, we normally give them uh, credit for. And, and this is something which you see uh, throughout the world. Um, and the Baghdad battery, you know, an awful lot of these things, when you move into such things like metal Baghdad batteries or metal antiquitera devices, we all know, even today, how much of our technology rusts or is subject to, to problems. And so to be confronted with metal objects which are hundreds or thousands of years old is, is a bit of a challenge. Time does not look kindly to its metals. And so uh, us trying to reconstruct or figure out what these devices once were is extremely hard. And, and what, is your, what is your take? I mean, was this device actually producing some type of voltage, do you think? I think indeed it was more than likely producing... Uh, some kind of low voltage to which they could, you know, basically work with, with certain metals and, and, and plate and, and, and work with them uh, in, in basically creating them in the, in the shape, form, and whatever aspect they, they wanted it to be. Um, and, you know, there's, there's clear evidence that our ancestors were very much um, familiar with, with things like, I mean, just on, on, a, on a slightly different scale, like medicine. Our ancestors, you know, knew so much about herbal medicine. They knew um, uh, so much. And we today have lost that. We have big pharma doing things in, in certain ways. And we think somehow that our ancestors would know that or do that as well. We consider that to be some form of, 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 of high technology, you know, being able to create a pill out of, out of chemical substances. Our ancestors basically were familiar with the fact that everything which we needed somehow was there inside nature and they had basically an encyclopedic knowledge of what was there in nature and they applied it and they took it um, and you know they, they prepared it for human consumption and for human illnesses uh, it's, it's a different approach our ancestors were far more knowledgeable and were far more able to play with things um, you know things like when when people say um, how certain statues might have been um, subjected to some form of of, of levitation or how to work with, um, you know, getting, getting stones somehow um, soft. Well, there are birds in South America who go to a, a certain tree uh, and take the, 
basically take the juices from that tree and they know that even in the hardest rock by by using that liquid they can basically soften this uh, stone up and they can create nests. All it takes is our ancestors to look at the bird and say, oh wow, that's interesting. Let's see whether we can do that ourselves. Let's see whether we can work with these juices um, and, and, and do the same thing. So much is about observation and analysis and that is something which we um, seem to have forgotten. We seem to try to do everything through technology. Our ancestors um, relied on some technology but largely they relied on knowledge. Well, let, let me see if we can push the boundaries here a little bit. I mean, a, a, a primitive battery uh, is one thing. Uh, but let's go back to July 1945 and Robert Oppenheimer, the physicist behind the Manhattan Project, of course, um, and the first detonation of a nuclear device at um, Alamogordo. Uh, and then sometime after that, he's delivering this seminar about uh, that blast that he nicknamed Trinity, and a college student asks if that had been the first detonation of a nuclear device on planet Earth. And Oppenheimer's answer, of course, uh, well, yes, in modern times. Uh, what do you think he meant by that? I think he meant exactly what he said. I think he meant that in the past um, there had been not necessarily identical devices, but definitely similar devices of, of you know, great destruction and you again, you see um, the likes of Tesla, who were pretty much in, in his time as well. Tesla understood certain things about the nature of this planet, and at one point he basically said that he understood how to split the Earth into two. Um, now that's you know, I'm one of those people who thinks that it's quite a good thing that the FBI invaded. Um, Tesla's um, home and his research laboratories and made sure this kind of information didn't get out there because it's quite a dangerous thing. I, I, I quite like the Earth to be one rather than two pieces. Um, but it again goes into this, this notion of, of knowledge. And so what we're seeing is that our ancestors are um, having knowledge as well. Um, but that in the case, I think, of, of, of when it comes to all of these atomic experiments, what they were specifically referring to was texts such as the Mahabharata and other Indian epics, whereby basically our ancestors were describing wars fought in the sky and they were describing, um, you know, battles between the gods and, and battles okay. which, even though they were fought within the gods, somehow had a result on planet Earth. People Let me jump in here. Die. We've got to take another time out. We'll come back and talk Atlantis. Phil Coppins, The Lost Civilization Enigma. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Philip Coppins is with us. The Lost Civilization Enigma, a new inquiry into the existence of ancient cities, cultures, and peoples who predate recorded history. Philip, a lot of speculation about Atlantis. What and where is Atlantis? And what's the best evidence for its existence? Well, the best evidence for its existence is basically what Plato told us. Plato was the guy who wrote it down, uh, who said... He wrote it down in a book of history. He said it was history. And we currently live in a mindset whereby somehow we uh, defer to scientists who basically say that he didn't mean it to be.
be history, that somehow him saying it was history was some kind of literary device and that he was basically describing an idealized state. And that is a position which you simply cannot maintain if you are truly scientific because in his time, the 4th century BC, Plato had his own attackers. Uh, they didn't believe this. So what they did was they jumped on a boat, they sailed to Egypt, they spoke to priests who had related this story to Solon um, a few uh, years before. Um, the priest said, yes, we know about this lost civilization called Atlantis. It is written on that column over there. Uh, the likes of Crantor jumped back into their boats, sailed back to Greece, and basically said, um, yes, we were skeptical, um, but indeed the ancient Egyptians did um, have the story of Atlantis, and uh, therefore what we uh, you know, hear Solon say and Plato wrote down is absolutely accurate in the sense that the ancient Egyptians believed that Atlantis existed. Obviously, their belief doesn't necessarily mean that Egypt existed, uh, that Atlantis existed. But the story of Atlantis is about a lost civilization which is 10,000 years old. We now know that 10,000 years ago we were at the end of the last ice age. It meant that areas of um, Europe and the Atlantic Ocean were exposed, which are now below the sea. We know that there were gigantic ice sheets which were beginning to melt. Things like Scotland and parts of England were under an ice sheet which was two miles high. All of that began to melt as a result of which the water levels began to rise. What we hear in the story of Atlantis is indeed that the waters began to rise and that the civilization of Atlantis was destroyed um, in a single day and a single night because it was actually um, a, a plain level civilization. So once it began to flood somewhere, everything flooded. The civilization of Atlantis, if you listen to dates which are put down by Plato, that existed from roughly 25,000 BC to 10,000 years ago. Um, when you look to certain um, scientists like Dr. Mary Settergast, she wrote a wonderful book called Plato Prehistorian, and she identifies what we know about civilization in 20,000 to 10,000 BC in the areas which Plato said were under the influence of Atlantis. Um, and then we look at what Plato said, and the two overlap. So the only thing missing is uh, the possibility that there was indeed a, an island somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean. Um, and in the book, Lost Civilization, Enigma, I actually put forward um, a possible location for this. It is the work of a Dutch scientist called um, Willem Zitman, who has been um, looking into such things as Stonehenge, Giza Plateau, Teotihuacan, and Tijuanaco, um, and felt that their positioning um, on the map of the world was no coincidence. He basically found that together with a site in the Atlantic Ocean, they form the layout of the constellation of Orion. Um, and we all know that Orion was a very important constellation, both in such places as Teotihuacan in Mexico, but also in such places as Giza. Um, the importance of this constellation for Orion, sorry, for, for Stonehenge and Tijuanaco, isn't clear yet simply because too little evidence and too little research has happened in these two uh, sites to, to come up with a, a possible correlation with Orion. But it is, you know, one of these things, once again, that it is clear that the New World and the Old World were somehow in communication. Imagine there are millions of stars out there. 
we know that on the old world and the new world, these were grouped pretty much identical. Both Orion uh, was identified and grouped as such in the new world and the old world. Uh, Orion's belt was then specifically linked with pyramid building. Teotihuacan complex was the built-in layout of Orion's belt, as were the three pyramids on the Giza Plateau. Just so I'm clear here, is the suggestion that some civilization hailing from somewhere in the Orion belt was working with whomever here on Earth, helping to build pyramids, helping to build Stonehenge, involved in the technology, perhaps giving the technology to the Atlanteans? Uh, it's a possibility, but I wouldn't go as far as that at this moment in time. Uh, in both the mythology of, of the, the ancient Egyptians and the Mayans, what they say is that there is somehow a cradle of life um, just south of Orion's belt, which somehow um, has an effect on, on life, whether this is some kind of you know, emission of energy or whatever it is at this moment in time, we don't know. Um, you know, and for all we know, and we should be open to this, our ancestors were simply confused uh, or mistaken. But it is a fact that both the ancient Egyptians and the Mayans were absolutely um, adamant about this fact. They linked this area with magical birth. Um, and so they incorporated into the layouts of um, these important complexes, and they link it with the gods. Uh, they say that the gods convened that the gods descended from the sky in these places, i.e. Titihuacan and, and the Giza Plateau. And I think, you know, once again, we need to go back to older times of, of like 30,000 BC, the, the beginning of mankind, when we have a consistent picture. Uh, you know, our ancestors, whether they are ancient Egyptians or whether they are a different civilization, they say that the gods were present on Earth, that they helped us in this endeavor called civilization. And we see civilization beginning at that moment in time. It's not as if, you know, there were thousands of years before the ancient Egyptian civilization began. You can clearly see that our ancestors were far more civilized much longer before. And I find it interesting um, that, you know, we are beginning to find, as in the case of, of, of the Bosnian pyramids, for example, uh, this 25,000 years old thing. That is precisely the date uh, which the ancient Egyptians say the ancient gods came to planet Earth. How, how technologically advanced w were the Atlanteans? Give me some examples um, uh, of the kinds of technology you suspect they had. I think technology-wise, they were not that much. I think what they had was an extremely uh, important and an extremely advanced form of understanding. Uh, I think most of their technology had to do with understanding as to how to work with water. Um, today, uh, various cultures, specifically in Russia, uh, there are, you know, scientists in, in Russia right now who are studying how pyramid power, um, basically putting a pyramid on the landscape, how it affects the water underneath the pyramid, underground streams which are there, how it affects the water nearby. Uh, somehow it creates a, a kind of energy, a kind of um, vibration in this water, simply to the shape of, of what it is. Um, our ancestors seem to have been aware of this, and they seem to have been able to play with this. They also realized the importance um, of, of, you know, basically surrounding certain parts with water, uh, not defensively, but, but basically how this was energetic, how putting giant stones on the landscape somehow created this, this effect as well, how you somehow were able to literally pull information into 
you know, rocks. We do this today. Computers and so much uh, else of our technology is basically putting information into quartz or sand. That is pretty much how a watch works, and that's pretty much how a computer works. But again, we do all of this very much with um, technology, um, hard technology, big machinery. And I think our ancestors were aware of something called, um, you, you might call it spiritual technology. Um, actually, the likes of Paul Davis, who is a professor um, of um, um, astrobiology at, at uh, the University of Arizona in Phoenix, he actually has come up with something saying non-material technology, in which he's basically saying that um, pretty much technology of an, of an advanced civilization, when we uh, connect to it, is pretty much on par with magic. Um, you know, it's very hard to visualize this, but in, in a nutshell, uh, you know, what you might see is, is, is some kind of light phenomena hanging somewhere, and then all of a sudden something happens. Um, it's very much working with the fabric of the universe rather than building a big machine or a sledgehammer um, and, and putting it into uh, work like that. And that is, again, uh, conform with what our ancestors are saying about some of these things, like, you know, like how some objects were sometimes floated into space, levitation, all of these things. Uh, it is looking at the way the universe works and beginning to realize and how to play with this. Tesla is, is a 20th uh, 20th century example of this. But definitely, um, you know, right now we have certain scientists who are beginning to realize that technology doesn't have to come in space rockets or big machinery, but that technology also involves levels of, first of all, understanding the fabric of the universe and then being able to work with that. Um, and, and again, you know, they go as far as basically say that an advanced civilization um, might actually have non-material technology, i.e. you don't need a machine. It is somehow non-material. It really works with the energies of the universe as such, and that is a technology. Do you suspect that you know, what is placed on the shelves on exhibit in museums is mere window dressing in order to sort of buttress this orthodox timeline that has been laid out for us and that what they have stored in crates in the basement, that's the real story and that they're not going to let us see that? Um, yes and no. I think that there are objects in museums um, which are purposely um, you know, ridiculed or, or misrepresented, um, either in dates or in importance. The, the lenses. Is, is one example of that. The Leyland lens, this, this telescopic lens used by, by the Babylonians, sits inside the British Museum. Everybody can see it. Um, there are crystal skulls inside the British Museum, and they're labeled as being 19th century fakes. Well, you know, first of all, that's, that's not the case. But if they were, just remove them from the display. Why, why put them there? Um, but there, there are definitely things, um, you know, not necessarily in, in the vaults of museums, I think, actually, most of the material is, remains in situ. Um, things like the sarcophagi in, this, in the Serapeum in Saqqara in Egypt, you know, where they have come up with ridiculous theories as to how this is somehow coffins for bulls uh, who were deified. Clearly, something else was happening there. Um, we, you know, we might not know necessarily what, um, but we definitely know that, that the traditional uh, explanations do not fit and so I think it's a combination of, of objects. You know, sometimes they're on display, but they're misquoted. Sometimes they're not on display, and sometimes they remain in situ. Um, overall, however, um, museums do play the role of, of, of window dressing. They do pretend that you know everything in them 
uh, and which is on display is extremely important and shows this adventure of civilization. And in truth, it is a misrepresentation. Um, and specifically when it comes to things like the British Museum, you know, there are far more interesting artifacts in far smaller museums elsewhere in the world um, who are far more important than some of the objects which are inside the British Museum or things like the Smithsonian. Well, Philip, uh, I really appreciate your time and congratulations uh, on completing the Lost Civilization Enigma. I guess this will slowly change, but only as the old guard, these uh, gatekeepers uh, sort of die off and replaced by... Uh, uh, younger, uh, more, uh, I guess, innovative, courageous minds, people such as yourself. Philip, congratulations again, and thank you for your time tonight. Thank you for having me on your show, Richard. All right. The Lost Civilization Enigma. Uh, back next week, we'll talk with uh, rock and roll investigator R. Gary Patterson as we uh, near the uh, the anniversary uh, that gave rise to the whole uh, Paul McCartney is dead legend. Uh, R. Gary Patterson will explain that. Is the Paul McCartney, the Sir Paul McCartney we see today, in fact, the same one that started all those years ago with the Beatles? Or is he a replica, a clone? We'll find out. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Thank you, Tim. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. <laughs>